So here's the question I want to answer this morning. How do we practice forgiveness? How do we practice it? God said, if we can just kind of maybe start our thoughts in Ephesians chapter 4, Paul makes this comment in Ephesians 4 that is interesting to us in this subject. He says this, Ephesians 4, verse 32. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving each other, and then this phrase, just as God in Christ also has forgiven you. He takes the example of God, and he says that the example of God is the example by which we are to follow. We're to walk in God's footsteps. We are to walk like God. We are to forgive like God forgives. That's what we're called to. The question is ultimately, what does that look like? What does it look like to forgive like God? One of my concerns is that evangelical language on forgiveness flattens forgiveness into simply the idea of pardon. The theological high point of redemption, the pardon of our transgressions, becomes the central focus of forgiveness and the only focus. And I want to rescue this idea to demonstrate that forgiveness is not an event, but a virtue. It is something that we practice regularly. It is something that is regularly demonstrated as a virtuous expression of love. It is practiced at all times. It's practiced regularly. It will be practiced continually until we die. And I wish to demonstrate that to you. But I know it's difficult. It's a difficult subject and it's nuanced. And we have to be careful in our thinking as we work through this. And it became evident to me that this is something that we have to be careful about. And we have to think carefully on because as I was teaching in Argentina, I found and I could hear my translator struggling with it. Because in the English, I can distinguish between the idea of forgiveness and the result, pardon. And I I can make the nuanced distinction, and you have some categories that you can begin to see the differences, even though you're thinking these look the same, you can still see distinctions. In Spanish, they didn't have such categories. And so at one point, I was listening to my translator, and I was using the different words, forgiveness and pardon, and I kept hearing him say, pardon, pardon. And after a few times, he kept saying, and and, uh, being reminded, pardon, pardon, and and I I leaned over to him. I said, you don't have another word for forgiveness, do you? And he's like, no, I I don't. And we started to engage back and forth and talk about, all right, what are we going to do to express this idea in another language to somebody? And we determined that he can move between the present tense, forgiving, and the past tense, forgiven. And he can make a distinction between the practice of forgiving and then the result having been forgiven. And by that, he can make the, the verbal distinction and we can start to build on this idea. The point in all of this is that this subject of forgiveness is complex because there are multiple parties involved. You have the transgressor and the transgressed. 
You have the doer of the evil deeds that, that incurs a debt, and you have the recipient, the victim, the one left holding the debt, and each has a responsibility. Each has a burden. And if we only look at the final end results, that of pardon, and we only think that, that forgiveness begins and ends at that particular point, we're going to miss a lot. A lot in God's expression, and we're going to miss a lot in regards to how we practice forgiveness. And that's why my hope is to recapture this idea of forgiveness, taking it out of its one-dimensional understanding of pardon and flushing it out to the virtue that it actually is that's expressed in many ways, in many expressions, sometimes small, sometimes internal, sometimes private, and other times in public displays, and then ultimately our all hope is and the full expression of pardon. But it doesn't even stop there. Once it's pardoned, it even moves on into restoration, a regular practice of forgiveness. So that we need to work at two things. We need to work at understanding what forgiveness is. That's the first part of our difficult challenge. And the second part is how do we practice it? How is it played out? And that's where... This morning, at least, to seek to address that idea. How we, when somebody has sinned against us and we're holding on to the debt, how do we begin to demonstrate this forgiveness? Now, just quickly, the definition of forgiveness. Let me give you kind of my working definition that I've been kind of working on for many years now, shaping and and redeveloping, but I would give you this definition for forgiveness. Forgiveness is the unconditional release of a sin debt by the transgressed. And it is experienced by the transgressor in full pardon upon confession and repentance. That is a big concept and idea that I think grabs the picture of the both sides and both party's responsibility in the practice of forgiveness. It's unconditional in the sense that there's nothing that you need to do in order to receive from me forgiveness. There's nothing you can do. There's no sweet words you can say. There's no amount of money you could pay. There's no amount of actions that you could do to earn it back. It's unconditional. It is something that the one who has been transgressed has to decide unconditionally to release. But it is not experienced by the transgressor until the transgressor has gone and determined that they confess and repent. And when they do confess and repent, they experience the riches of unconditional forgiveness in full pardon. And that full pardon is practiced. That full pardon is demonstrated regularly. And so it is this whole idea of forgiveness, that we want to see how it flows out and how it works. Now, the Bible uh, uses two primary words when talking about, and I say primary because these are the major words used, but there are other words used in regards to forgiveness, but two significant words used. That first is the word of fiemi, 
And fiemi means to cast off, to release. It is used many times, sometimes translated as forgiving, but at other times it means to cast, to send something away. The word fiemi has a negative connotation and it has the idea of sending away a debt. When we speak about it in context of forgiveness, it speaks of sending away a debt, casting it off, to remove it. But there's a second word, and that second word is charizomai. And this second word is the more positive term, and this term means the giving of freedom. It comes from the root word charis, grace. It is the idea of the giving of somebody freedom, giving them release, delivering them. And it's these two words that the scriptures go back and forth on, one talking about debt and what happens to the debt, and the other speaking about what is happening as the forgiver is generous and lavish and showing kindness. Both are ideas, both are significance. And as I would emphasize, if Ephiemi speaks about what happens to the debt, Charizomai speaks about what is happening in the forgiver and his generosity and his lavishness. God's love. See, I believe that God forgave us by an act of love whereby he unconditionally released the debt of our sin and he covered our impossible debt and we experienced the riches of that forgiveness and the fullness of pardon at salvation when we, by faith, confess with our mouth Jesus as Lord and believed in our heart that God raised him from the dead. We turned from our sins and we followed God. We experience the riches of God's forgiveness towards us. It is this idea that Forgiveness is practice. And I would say this, that when we speak about forgiveness, and again, I want to keep emphasizing, forgiveness is not an event. It's a virtue practiced. It is a, a quality that flows, a virtue that flows out of love. Maybe it can stem like this. Forgiveness is the flower stemming from the seed of love. It is by love that God sent his son into the world to die for sinners. It is the love of God that compelled God to send uh, the Son to be our redemption, to cover our transgressions. Love drives us to restore relationships. Love compels us to protect those relationships. Love motivates us to show forgiveness and reconciliation. Love is the root of all forgiveness expressed. You can see then, love practice flowers in forgiveness. The sweet flower, the sweet aroma of love is expressed in forgiveness because relationships are protected, they're restored, they're brought together. You see the riches of that grace when what was broken has been renewed and and restored. Forgiveness then, I want to, us to be thinking about it's a virtue we practice it regularly sometimes just like love in small tiny expressions and sometimes like love in magnificent in large expressions but it's regularly practiced and it doesn't stop after the main event it continues on 
Just as your love didn't stop when you got married, it continued on and grew and matured and kept on going, so too forgiveness doesn't stop, continues to be expressed throughout your life. Here in Ephesians 4.32, when Paul draws our attention to forgiving and states that we are forgiving each other just as God in Christ also has forgiven you, He sets before us this reminder, we are following in God's example. God is our example. And I would suggest to anybody that if you believed that God's forgiveness began and ended at justification, you have too narrow a picture. And I hope to demonstrate that to you this morning. And then as I've wrestled through this and thought through the idea and what it looks like and how forgiveness is practiced, and I looked at God's example, I've started to identify that there are internal and external expressions of forgiveness. There are internal heart determinations, mind determinations, internal responses that maybe no one else sees but God that moves then to external expressions that are public, that are demonstrated, that all see. And that's what I want to show you so that there are, we could say, seven practices of forgiveness. Seven practices, ways in which this forgiveness is demonstrated. Turn over to Matthew chapter 18 and I just want to look at the end of that section that we read, Matthew chapter 18, verse 35, just to kind of illustrate this for you, that forgiveness starts internally and moves externally. You remember the whole parable there, as, uh, as Jesus described the lavish forgiveness that we had received. It's like we were, again, received this uh, impossible debt was covered, And then Jesus gives the warning at the end, if you're not a forgiver, if you're not regularly practicing it, it comes with this warning. The warning is in verse 35. My heavenly Father will also do the same to you. That is, if you're not forgiving, neither will my heavenly Father forgive you. Notice, if each of you does not forgive his brother, and now this phrase, from your heart, from within, from the internal expression moving to the external, there is an inward drive that moves you to express forgiveness externally. And that's what I want to demonstrate. So first of all, the internal expressions of forgiveness, there are four of them. There are four internal expressions. And here's the first expression or practice. Forgiveness is immediate. Forgiveness is immediate. It's the first idea. You can demonstrate this. Turn over to Acts chapter 7. You see this in Acts chapter 7. This is an internal immediacy that takes place. Acts chapter 7 and verse 60. You remember as in this section that Stephen has just preached a marvelous sermon confronting the Jews of his day, exposing their unbelief and calling them to repentance. They uh, sadly did not accept his message. They picked up stones, they started to stone him on the spot, throw stones at him. Part of the events has recorded the significance of it because in verse 58 it says that the men who were throwing the stones took off their outer garments and they laid them at the feet of, the, of Saul, who would eventually become the Apostle Paul. 
And the, so Paul is standing there watching Stephen receive stones thrown at him. Verse 59 says, And they went on stoning Stephen as he called on the Lord, and he said, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Verse 60, Then falling on his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. Having said this, he fell asleep. His very last words, his last words were, Father, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. Forgive them. What we see in this is the demonstration, and just think about the significance of the event. What you have is Stephen, while being murdered, asking for release. Asking for deliverance. There's an immediacy demonstrated here. There's a sense in which, even while those stones are in the air, even before the final blow has taken place, even, even while they're expressing their own hatred towards Stephen, <coughs> he's asking for their forgiveness. He's asking that God would release this. To demonstrate to us this, that when it comes to regards to forgiveness, I don't need to wait for anything to begin to pursue it begin to demonstrate it. I don't need to wait for my emotions to catch up. I don't need to wait for them to come to a point in which they realize that they've sinned against me enough, therefore they need to pursue forgiveness. I don't need to wait. I can begin to be expressed immediately. This is not the only account. You can turn over to Luke chapter 23. You saw this in Luke chapter 23. <clears throat> Jesus, while on the cross, experienced this as well. Jesus arrested in the middle of the night, taken captive and thrown into a kangaroo court that happened not only outside of the legal place and where court, court cases were heard, but they were also happened in the middle of the night with no other witnesses around so that he did not get a fair trial. He was tried in the middle of the night, turned over to the Roman authorities false charges brought against him. He was then condemned by those Roman authorities, beat up by Roman officials, by the soldiers, and then led to the cross. He's now hanging on the cross, having been mistreated, falsely accused. He is bleeding and suffering. In verse 34, he says there in Luke 23, Jesus was saying, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. Again, while being murdered, while being mistreated, even while the sin is taking place and hasn't fully come to fruition, there's the demonstration of an internal immediacy is saying this, I will not hold this debt against them. I'm seeking to cover this debt. Forgiveness begins with an immediacy, a determining I'm going to cover this debt. There's an urgency within But there's more to the practice of forgiveness. The second practice would be this. Forgiveness is practiced by evaluating our right to collect. Forgiveness is practiced by evaluating where the debt is. Is there a real debt? Is there a real transgression or not? In his book on forgiveness, Gary Ingring wrote a book, and the book is entitled Forgiveness, subtitled Discover the Power and Reality of Authentic Christian Forgiveness. 
And in his introduction, he describes an event where some well-meaning Christians went on TV after 9-11 and said, we forgive Osama bin Laden for flying planes into the Trade Towers. And it caused no end of uproar, uh, these Christians, as they were making this profession. In fact, I read also some articles in the Wall Street Journal about it. It's, this basically came across as cheap. These Christians, desiring to demonstrate unconditional forgiveness, seemingly cheapened the whole event by offering forgiveness. To which the question is, is that then uh, a, a mis- you know, does that demonstrate that unconditional forgiveness is a fraud? What's going on here? And I would suggest this. We only have the right to forgive debts that we can collect on. If it's not something that I can collect on, I can't release the debt. And you have a mortgage, some of you. And I could walk up to you and say, your mortgage is forgiven. And we'd say, no, we know your job. You're a pastor. You don't have that kind of money. And we could say, no, you aren't my mortgage holder. You can't release this debt. But if your bank came to you or your mortgage lender came to you and they said to you, your debt is forgiven, well, there's a day of rejoicing and the fattened hog is coming. I mean, you invite us all over for the party. We will rejoice with you. You see, you can only release that debt which you have a right to collect on so that there isn't an unconditional forgiveness where I walk around forgiving all of your debts and all of your debts as if I had a right to collect on that debt. I cannot. I can only release that which I have a personal right to collect on. Second of all, we can only release debts that are actual debts. I can only release that which actually a debt occurred, where there is a moral transgression. I cannot release something that is not a moral transgression. I may decide that I believe that my wife should make me, bed, make me breakfast in bed, and that every morning she should provide for me breakfast in bed, and if I don't have that breakfast, I am now personally offended, and she owes me. She has incurred a debt. I forgive you, dear, because you did not make me breakfast in bed this morning, but I'll give you the chance tomorrow to make up for it. Well, that, that, that's not, that is not a transgression. Even if I had thought, well, love would demonstrate this, that's not, again, a command of God. It's not a moral law broken. There's no debt incurred there. We're not forgiving people who transgress our preferences, we can only forgive those who transgress the law of God, the commands of God. They have incurred an actual moral debt where they're indebted both to you and to God. And so part of forgiveness is the evaluation. Where is the debt? Is there a real debt? And whose right is it to collect on that debt? So that when we understand the debt and whose right it is to collect on that debt, we recognize this, even in forgiveness, friends, if you've been sinned against, you know this, that when you release the debt, they still owe a debt to God. You've only released the part that's owed you. You turn them over to God now. I think that's exactly what Jesus did there in Luke chapter 23. He says, as far as my side of the debt, the humanity side, what he owes me, what they owe me, is covered Father, it's now in your hands. 
<clears throat> so forgiveness, not only is it immediate as it starts to begin to express the releasing of the debt, it also evaluates where is the debt and who has the right to collect on it. Thirdly, the practice of forgiveness, the internal expression. Again, these are all internal. These are all in our heart. These are in our mind. These are our evaluations. The third expression is this. There's a determination to release one's right to collect on the debt. A determination within the heart. I am not going to let this debt get in the way. I'm going to release this debt. I'm going to cover it. I'm not going to let that debt, that transgression, that owed me get in the way of restoration. It's a determination. <clears throat> I think this is what's got, what Jesus is getting at in Matthew chapter 18, in verse 35, that we are forgiving from the heart. There is a determination from the heart. I am not going to let this transgression get in the way of restoration. <coughs> going to cover. And again, it starts internally. And you may think to yourself, well, how is that like God? How is that kind of forgiveness, a determination within the heart, like the forgiveness that God has shown us? Let me suggest to you a few passages. Let me suggest Ephesians chapter 1. When in Ephesians 1, Paul says this, Ephesians 1 verse 3, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Notice verse 4, Just as he chose us in him, notice when, before the foundation of the world, what? That we would be holy and blameless before him. We think from eternity past, before anything was created, before the world was created, before you were created, before I was created, in eternity past, God determined that he would choose his people and that he would not hold their trans- transgressions against them. These are going to be holy and blameless. How did that work out? Verse 5, he predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to himself, according to the kind intention of his will. Verse 6, to the praise of the glory of his grace, which he freely bestowed on him, or bestowed on us in the beloved. Now, verse verse 7, it is in Christ, in him, we have redemption through his blood, and now this phrase, the forgiveness of our trespasses. From eternity past, he determined that we would be with the Son, and it's through the Son that we would receive forgiveness. Before you even existed, and before I even existed, in the heart of God, he determined that this is what was going to take place. Colossians chapter 1, verses 13 and 14, describes it like this. That we were, he rescued us from the domain of darkness, And he transferred us into the kingdom of his beloved son. What is that? There is the determination on God's part. I'm going to go rescue the sinner. I'm going to bring the sinner to myself. I'm going to give them to my son. Remember what Paul said in Romans, Romans chapter 5 and verse 6. When did Christ die for us? That while we were yet enemies, Christ died for us. And it is, as Titus 2.14 says, it is the grace of God who sought us. 
What is all of this but God determining that I am not going to hold this debt against them? I am seeking them. Forgiveness starts with an internal resolve to seek the transgressor and to demonstrate to that transgressor this debt will be covered. It will not get in the way. One more expression of an internal expression of forgiveness is prayer. Turn over to Mark chapter 11. We see this in Mark chapter 11 and verse 25. <clears throat> Mark eleven twenty-five, and this is a really powerful um, section. So this is the final days of Jesus' life, the Passion Week. Mark chapter 11, Jesus had come in the triumphal entry. Some call it Palm Sunday. I call it Palm Monday. He came in on the first day. On Monday, he came, visited. But there was a little event when he came in on that first day, whether it was Sunday or Monday. He came in on that first day, and he saw a fig tree. And there was a fig tree there that Jesus expected would have figs on it. And in that, he would take of that tree and be able to be comforted by its fruit. But when that, he came up to that tree, he saw on the tree there was no fruit at all, so he cursed the tree immediately, and he left. The next day, they enter back. This is day two. Again, Tuesday, comes back in, and his disciples see the tree. Verse 20 picks up the account for us in Mark chapter 11. When they were passing by in the morning. They saw the fig tree withered from the roots up. I don't know if you've watched a tree die before, but it doesn't die fast. A tree dies, it dies very slowly. You start to see the leaves change color. You start to see the branches droop. You start to see it die. It takes a long time. This was a rapid and sudden death. And it wasn't just from the top down. It was from the roots on up. It was withered. Verse 21, being reminded, Peter said to him, Rabbi, look, the fig tree which you cursed has withered. And Jesus answered, saying to them, have faith in God. Verse 23, truly I say to you, Whoever says to this mountain, be taken up and cast into the sea and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that he, what he says is going to happen, it will be granted him. Now, verse 24. Therefore, I say to you, all things for which you pray and ask, believe that you have received them and they will be granted you. Just stop right there for a second. What Jesus demonstrates here is this is the context for rich prayer we are to have faith-filled prayers. The demonstration of faith, this is what you guys could do too if you walked in faith. You need to be praying like this. You need to be praying with this kind of faith, this kind of trust and dependence, this kind of confidence. Now, it's in the midst of that context, this demand of great faith in prayer, that then this verse comes in, verse 25. Whenever you stand praying, forgive. If you have anything against anyone, so that your Father who is in heaven will also forgive you your transgressions. 
That almost seems out of place. Like, uh, if you just stop that verse 24, I completely understand it, that you add 25 and you drop it in there is mind-blowing. But what he demonstrates in this is that prayer is the context, the originating context, I believe, of great forgiveness. We are praying to God. Notice again what is uh, demonstrated here. Whenever you stand praying, this is that you are there doing it, whenever it happens, you stand there, you're praying, you are to forgive. And then notice this, who, who are you to forgive? If you have anything against anyone. Now, I've racked my mind that that covers everything. It covers every person and every event. Anything and everyone. Those are two words that we're not allowed to use in, this, in our home, always and never. These are anything, anytime, with everyone, whenever it happens, it covers every single realm, you forgive. No wonder you put it in the context of great faith. It's too hard. Too hard to forgive. Too demanding. The point demonstrated here is now, here's where you begin to express forgiveness. You begin to express forgiveness privately before God in prayer. Father, forgive them, for they know not what they're doing. Father, help me to release my right to collect on this debt. Father, help me to let go of this debt and to cover this debt and to remove it. Help the person repent that they would receive the fullness of pardon. Help them be delivered so that our relationship can be restored as they repent and as I release this debt. It's a private prayer. So that these are the internal expressions of forgiveness. It is an immediacy. There's an evaluation of where's the debt and do I have a right to hold on to it. There's a determination within the heart. I'm not going to let this debt get in the way. There is a dependency in prayer. Father, forgive them. Help me to forgive. I forgive them. I desire to show them that forgiveness. But to assume then that forgiveness stops there, you're not done yet. It now moves to external expressions. And this is lastly, I'm so out of time, but I'm going to push through. Three more points. There are external expressions. What's the next, the external expressions? Three of them. The next one is this. This is step five. The practice of forgiveness is to pursue the transgressor, to pursue them. Whose responsibility is it to pursue reconciliation? And I would say, yes. It's everyone's. It's both sides. Transgressor and the transgress. Both parties have the responsibility. Turn over to Matthew chapter 5. We see this. Matthew chapter 5 puts the burden and responsibility squarely on the transgressor. Matthew chapter 5, verse 23 and verse 24 says this. It says, Therefore, if you are presenting your offering at the altar, and there remember that your brother has something against you, Leave your offering there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother, then come and present your offering. Here's the transgressor. He's coming into worship. And while in the middle of worship he's making his offering, he remembers some, somebody has something against me. God says, leave that there. More important than your worship to me is the reconciliation and restoration with your brother. You go restore. Be reconciled. Then, then make your offerings. 
The transgressor has the burden and responsibility to pursue reconciliation and restoration. But it's also our duty. Galatians 6.1 says, Any man's caught in a trespass, you are spiritual. Restore. It's the duty and responsibility of both parties to pursue reconciliation and restoration. And it is the example of God to pursue us, to pursue reconciliation. What's this idea of reconciliation? Reconciliation is an accounting term. It speaks of the idea of a fair exchange. To reconcile is, a, is a, again, an accounting expression of a fair exchange. You know this when you go into a store and you see that glistening item on the shelf and you're like, I must have that. And so you grab it and you determine, do I have the resources? You recognize, oh, I have what they want for this. You go to the cash register. You give them some of your currency. You get to take home that precious item. A fair exchange has taken place. Both parties walk away relieved. That is a fair exchange. But in relationships, there is a relational reconciliation, a relational exchange that must take place where the transgressor needs to repent and the transgressed needs to forgive. And when both parties fulfill their part of forgiving and repenting and the exercise for forgiving and repenting, reconciliation is taking place. There's a relational reconciliation occurring. So part of the practice of forgiveness is then being the pursuer to say, I am going to go show my part here. I'm going to go show forgiveness by pursuing the transgressor and telling the transgressor that you're not going to let that debt get in the way of the relationship and you are going and pursuing them, showing them that they too can experience the fullness of pardon if they would confess and repent. The pursuit is a demonstration. And here's a question I'd ask you. If, if you wondered, how do I know that I am forgiving? How do I know that I am releasing this debt? My answer to you is, when you can pursue that sinner and show them love. When you can show them that that debt is covered, that that debt's not going to get in the way of the relationship, that that debt is removed... You have in your heart released your right to collect on the debt. Leads to the sixth expression, forgiveness, is this. Affirming pardon after confession and repentance. It is so then you pursued them, you pursued the transgressor, They sought the error of their way. They repented of their sin. They sought to put it off. They experienced pardon. And you think, my hands are clean. We're done. We could walk away. No. Now you continue to live in affirmation of that pardon. Now you continue to remind yourself you're not going to pick up that debt again after it has been released. You're not going back to that debt. You're showing the practice that that debt has been removed and you're reaffirming to the transgressor when they've repented, you're reaffirming to them that that debt is removed. You're rejoicing with them and the transgression has been covered. And you are encouraging them as they progress on. What would this look like? 
will look like this, because I, I know our temptation. Our temptation is this. You said you're sorry. I said I forgave you. Now I never want to see you again. That's not forgiveness. It's bitterness. It's not forgiveness. Forgiveness is you said you're sorry. You turned from your sins. I forgave you. I released you of that debt. And now I want to continue to show you the love of God poured out. And I rejoice in your changes. I rejoice that you're progressing. I rejoice that you're distancing yourself from your transgression, that you're proving yourself innocent of the matter, that you're fulfilling 2 Corinthians 7. How would this look? It looks like showing gratitude for God that he has restored the relationship. It's showing gratitude uh, towards the transgressor that they are changing and putting off the deeds. It is reminding yourself you cannot go back to that debt and pick it back up. It has been released. As a regular practice, which leads to the final practice, to continue to affirm forgiveness and restoration. You see, reconciliation is the process by which two, two people are coming together. But we're moving to restoration. And what is restoration? Like, you know, when you go find a car in a junkyard and it's just completely beaten up and you take it out and you completely restore it. You restore it back to its original beauty and original usefulness. Maybe even better than what it was before. Adding a few more special features. That is restoration, that you bring it back and make it useful and beautiful again. That forgiveness doesn't, again, stop at the event of pardon. It moves to being useful, moves to restoration so that you can say of the relationship, this relationship is better than what it was before. It is deeper, it is richer, it's more significant than it ever was because the beauty of forgiveness is demonstrated and the riches of repentance are demonstrated. And now we operate in such trust and harmony it's as if the event never occurred. Forgiveness will be regularly practiced and it will mature even into full restoration. And that's the way we have to operate. When we think about when I forgive somebody, I don't want to just stop at you have a sense that the debt is released. I don't want to stop until we have such sweet joy and love in the relationship as if the event never occurred. Fully restored. It is this virtue of forgiveness practice is exactly what God has done for us. Think about who you are now, who we are in Christ. We are anticipating that day when we will be resurrected, given our glorified bodies, and God will say of us, welcome children, sons of God, daughters of God. It's not just broken sinners restored back to being innocent, we have been made children of God as the outworking of God's expression of forgiveness. And none of that occurred if God didn't from eternity past decide, I will not hold this debt against them. I will cover it. I will send my son. The son in obedience said, I will go. The son in obedience said, I will yield my will. The son in obedience took upon himself condemnation. The son in, in, in obedience bore our wrath, the Father in his pleasure resurrected him, and the Father in his good pleasure then sent 
messengers to us to preach to us that gospel. We heard, believed, we believed by faith in the work of God, were regenerated, and we received pardon, forgiveness, justification. And then for the rest of our life, we live in that justifying grace that we have then become closer to God, made sons of God, conformed in the image of the Son. When did forgiveness happen? It's from eternity past and then well into eternity future. It's not an event. There's a virtue. A virtue flowing out of love. A virtue practiced regularly. And that's what it should be for us. Let's go before the Lord in prayer. Father, thank you so much for the riches of your grace. Thank you for your example to us in Christ. And we pray as we meditate on these things that these truths would be the reflection of our own practices. That we would show the internal and external expressions of forgiveness, knowing immediately we can forgive. Even when we don't feel like it, even when we don't feel that we will be fairly treated, even when we have fears and doubts about what is going to occur, we can immediately begin to demonstrate the riches of your forgiveness. We entrust ourselves to you. Turn over the transgressor to you, knowing that you work in the heart and you change and you will drive them. And you may use us as instruments as we pursue the sinner, as we pursue the transgressor, calling them to repentance. We know that you will use us. It's not our unforgiveness that will get in the way of pardon. It's their lack of repentance. And that's exactly where we wish the transgression to be. And we would pray for those who transgress, that they would demonstrate the rich forgiveness, a rich repentance that is demonstrated in the, ex- in the example of the godly. That they're innocent, that they prove to vindicate themselves. They seek to undo the matter. They seek to be in every way distance themselves from the transgression. May we be the kind of people who forgive richly and repent notoriously so that in all things your grace is on display. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.